Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 91 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. I almost said the Freelancer Show. We know you have another family, That's but we right. love you enough, so take what we'll get. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. I live in Utah. <laughs> all right. We're actually recording this on the 17th of December. Give away all of our secrets. No! This will come out. You live in Utah. You've got another family recording it on the 17th. Yeah, this should come Just out around New Year's. So. This Open place is a kimono today. Yeah, we're like three weeks wide ahead. open. This is why I've been so confused about episode numbers for the last three weeks. Anyway, this week we're going to talk about JSON APIs. Now, I don't know anyone here who might have, I don't know, recently done a course on this kind of stuff, but uh, so. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Jameson Dance. It's almost the end of the year of Luigi. Just think about, think about that. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you from the past. Going back to the future. Year of Luigi. Aaron Frost. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we really are going to talk about JSON APIs. Nice. So, uh, JSON APIs, I mean, the concept's pretty simple, right? You make a request to a server, you get JSON back. Yeah, that's why it's so easy to implement. Do we want to get into the philosophical debate about why you would do this at all, or do we just want to assume you have decided to do a JSON API? No, because we we hate XML, that's why. (laughs) <laughs> but well, wait why not? Why not I'm, do a server side app? There was like three good questions in there, though. Yeah, like why not? I, XML? I only noticed one. So, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Aaron. XML versus JSON. Pretty XML, sure here, of course. I'm pretty sure you can't even do JSON because it's the XML HTTP request object, right? So it only does XML. Yeah, yeah. it would be yeah, wrong. Mostly just malformed XML, actually. <laughs> yeah, strict X- XML would cause a parse error. It's got that little exclamation right in the front. Uh-huh. So are there drawbacks to XML other than the fact that you can't read it and it's a little more verbose than JSON? List out all the drawbacks. It's too um, big. Way too big. It's way too big, yeah. Sucks to read. There's no representation of objects, arrays, strings, or literals. There are. There are. There are. It does have yeah, like See? See? You don't know. Like, how do you represent an array in XML? The answer is however you it's want. Collection. You can do a collection yeah, of anything. Same way you yeah. do like an unordered list in HTML. I mean, it's just the... So list. So I'm just going to put LI in front of my item and that's going to make it an array? If that's what you called the thing, yeah. So that's... basically there's no standard way to do it. But I think the point you're trying to make, AJ, is more that XML doesn't conveys less about the content than JSON does. That's always it's, true because it, you've got like the XML tag itself. You can put attributes on it the same way you can attribute an HTML tag. So it's got some things that JSON doesn't have. You do it a different way in JSON, though. I mean, you get the same functionality just a different way, right? Yeah. So maybe the right way to say that is that it requires a little bit more understanding on the sender, part of the sender and the receiver. Maybe the correct way to say it would be it's a markup language, not an object notation. Yep. Yeah, but that's. I think XML versus JSON is a good illustration of the value of constraints because JSON is a much more constrained format. But if you let people do whatever they want, then I will misunderstand what is the correct way to do stuff and I'll do something dumb. So I'm the consultant here. I'll give you the right answer. It depends, but use JSON. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, one of the worst talks I ever listened to was that the Utah Java user group, UJUG, and a guy came in and spoke about why JSON sucks compared to, to XML. And I was a new programmer, so I didn't dare to speak up, but I was just like, that's so much wrong about what you're saying. I've learned since then that he was just totally wrong. XML, it's not easier to read. It's not more concise. Like It doesn't go over the wire better. It's not better. Like The size of the file you're sending, it's not going to be inherently better in XML versus JSON. It's just not. In my opinion, I think the capabilities between the two are approximately the same. It just boils down for me to the ability to look at JSON and know what I have versus looking at XML. And it's more verbose, and so I actually I have to spend a little bit more time looking at it to get the same amount out of it. And that's not to say that occasionally you don't wind up with a big JSON blob as your response. But for the most part, most JSON responses I see are pretty simple and pretty easy to read. Right. It's so, the year of Luigi, guys. It's 2013. I think we're all in agreement that we should use JSON. What do you mean by the year of Luigi? Where's that coming from? It's the year of Luigi. Nintendo declared 2013 is the year of Luigi. Uh, they also said the oh, year of Luigi cool. will continue to 2014. So the year of Luigi <laughs> is two years. That's two fine. Years of Luigi. It's fine because it's obviously not the year of Wii U. <laughs> yeah. The year what of Luigi won up somewhere Ouch. along the way. <laughs> all right. So then why not a server app? Well, there are a lot of reasons to have an API, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, having a server app that redirects. So I'm going to use that instead of, you know, basically the point is, is that sometimes you want APIs for things other than just a single page app or a JavaScript front end heavy app. So there are reasons beside that. But yeah, let's talk about single page app versus the server side app a little bit. It goes beyond just the the single page app too, though, because... Yeah, that's the extreme limit over there. Single page app. When you write one app that uses a JSON backend, you now like implementing a second app. Like if you wanted to go do a native iOS app or an Android app, there's already a backend in place for it. So now you've got two frontend apps consuming the same backend. It, it makes it a little bit easier to spread into different zones if you if you write it this way. That's also a big maybe, Frosty, right? Because if you don't design it so that it will work with both ends, then it, it's not going to. But you can't possibly do it the other way. Without an True. API, without a JSON it's, API, you can't do it at all. Exactly. The likelihood is, even if you try to do it the right way, you're still going to get it wrong and have to rev all of your APIs for your iOS app because it's just hard to get two different front ends working with the same back end. It is. I agree. You get some reuse there, though. I mean, at least you get a start. Sure. You'll have to customize some bits, though, but I think you're right. Yeah. It's more a fact of the matter that it's just hard to put two pieces together. It's hard to reuse code. Mm-hmm. It's not about... And it finally gives you a chance to do it. It just is hard to reuse code, and vast majority of people are going to find that, oh, there's so many things I didn't think about. Yeah. But some of those, like, you know, you move into the new one, you build some new functionality into it, and your other apps can take uh, advantage of it, too. So, I don't know. It's kind of nice. And along the way, you, you learn what you should and shouldn't do for right. when you build a public API, if you have one, right? Right. Yeah. One other thing that I want to point out with this is that we kind of moved part the way along this continuum when Facebook introduced their Facebook apps, right? Because Mm -hmm. effectively what you were doing is you were consuming their JSON API to either build in elements on your page or you were using it to add functionality and pull data from their service. In a lot of cases, both. And so you really can enhance a completely different website off of the API of your main app or build out separate apps, you know, based off of the same back end. 
And so it really does give you a lot of flexibility doing it the way that you're talking about. Absolutely. There's another reason too, is often it'll be a lot more, it will appear to be a lot more performant to the user. Yeah, I've heard that from a couple of people. And the main premise that I always hear with that, you have to understand that I've spent the last seven years building the server side app or the, you know, it load the HTML, click a link and load a new HTML page app. And um, the argument that I've heard is that you offload a lot of that rendering and work to the browser. And so effectively what you're doing is you're turning your app into a distributed app. Right. Yeah. We've kind of thrown out all merits of doing a, a server side rendered app too, though which I think there are some. I mean, I'm not going to preach it, but I think there's some sites that it makes sense to have server-rendered content. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to the tools in the workflow almost, just as much as the specific project. Like, if you want to do a server-side app, you can crank that out pretty fast in Rails. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's tons of tools in other languages that are just all optimized for it. So sometimes it's the path of least resistance if you're developing it. No, that's absolutely true. I feel like it's a lot more expensive to build a client side app than a server side app today. I mean, yeah, like, hey, do you probably want real in order modules packaging. in your code? Cool. Use a server side language and then you have them. Right. Like there's some weaknesses still in the tooling and, and development environment of client side stuff, but they're all getting better. Okay. So that was the why not a server app. What was the other question? Have any of you guys like designed a, a solid, a large JSON API? Like a, a big REST API, big like multiple buckets and stuff. Big no, no. I've built several little ones. I've been involved in a few, but it was just you know build this endpoint, build that endpoint. I do want to talk about REST for a minute because that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, and I don't know if people really understand what it's about. So REST is simple. There's only one person in the world who does REST. It's the guy who invented it. Nobody else does. <laughs> REST is like so cynical. No, it really is. Like, it's so easy to just condemn everyone else for not using the same definition of rest that you use. Yeah. I want to throw out a definition of rest. Yeah, go for it. Rest is that you can give someone a link to something, whether it be an HTTP link or like even a native application type of link like Spotify does, for example, and it will bring them to the application in the same state in which you viewed that application. And that entities in that application can be operated on with a defined convention within that application that has create the... What? AJ's gone. <clears throat> that sucks because I was going to, like, completely WTF on that definition. Yeah, I was too. <laughs> has anyone else had any experience building a large JSON API? Large yes. JSON? Sure. Yes. Well, I built a couple. Domo's is probably by far the biggest. I participated in building that. I certainly didn't like design it for the ground up by any means. In fact, I just stepped into existing requirements and RESTful was not a requirement by any means. So it was a very non-RESTful API. It really mimicked other APIs that I've done in other languages that were not JSON. You know, XML, it really, whether it's JSON or not, a non-RESTful API to me feels a lot the same. So what do you say, what do you mean when you say you have a non-RESTful API? We, we missed the definition, so I'm just going to go true. ahead with like, well, you so post to create resources, you get them by an ID after their like base URL or whatever. You just kind of right. interact with them right. in terms of resources through URLs. And one of my favorite things is when you create resources, is it an update them? Is it post or put? It's put. And I'll fight <laughs> which you. One's what, which one's put? Put is to update. You put to the resource slash ID. And you post to the resource to create new ones. Right. 
That's, that's it's, what Rails does. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, like, that's the thing. The definition of Rails that most people have is what Rails does, or of REST that most people have is what Rails does. Yeah. Yep. Which Certainly is not universally agreed upon, though. But um, no, it's not. But so my definition of REST would simply be that you know, for HTTP verbs, and you're operating on objects to just make changes to them, either updating, creating, deleting, or you know, sometime in the future, the magical unicorns of Patch will become available. Yeah. I think it's important to have a convention that you follow or, uh, you know, some kind of standard that you go for. Right. And it really helps then define where different things lie. Um, one question I have for you guys about REST is if you have certain kinds of updates or mass updates or things like that that you do that aren't, do you use the post or put that's requisite for that? Or do you actually create a separate endpoint for some kind of specialized operation? We're well, pretty aggressive about creating, about throwing away rest to save performance. So we use it when it's convenient and helpful. But if there's some task where it would just be like a ton of calls to, to do something, if you're strictly restful, then we just make a special. So Jameson, I don't, I think I only kind of answered half the question. So if you'd answer the other half, what does a non restful API feel like? Anything else? I don't know. A lot of times <laughs> it can feel like you're doing RPC. With URLs mm-hmm. as the function name and parameters, yeah, so so, like kind of like soap. I have, I, I've I think never it feels more like fortune of working with soap. I think it feels more like a regular programming. Like if I'm calling a JavaScript function, all of a sudden that JavaScript function is just an API over the web. You know, so I could do the same operation whether I call it. I mean, I can even mix the verb, right? I can do a make a delete call and not do a delete on the other end. It really has no bearing. Yeah. So Usually, when, I mean, you want to keep some sanity, though, right? If you're deleting stuff, even if it's sure. not going to fit into a RESTful URL, like yeah, there's no no, no accounting for stupidity. But the point is, is that non-RESTful URL, you could do something like that. And I mean, I've seen some fairly crazy endpoints implemented in ways like that. Like a get, you have to use a post to do a get on to get some data and stuff. <laughs> so I would say that it's not necessarily unrestful to like HTTP can't do everything. Like sometimes you have to do a post to do a get because you need to post a list of IDs and that list is rather long. And so it doesn't make sense to put it into a get because you need like specific parameters that are like nested attributes. And so you have to do a post as an HTTP verb in order to specify that. I wouldn't say that you're losing the spirit of restfulness. Um, the spirit of restfulness is actually the fourth spirit of Christmas. It's past, <laughs> present, future, and rest. And rest. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But I, when I think not restful, I think an API that hasn't had any design considerations. Like when you go to view an item, it's like slash user. And when you go to edit the user, it's like slash node 47 slash user update now. Or, you know, there's when people just tack on stuff to an API without considering the operations that are going to be performed on that entity as an object. Have I you wish been that working was... on WordPress lately. <laughs> I wish that was my definition of what restful and non-restful was. And I certainly don't feel like the general industry as a whole agrees with you with that, AJ. Where would you say that what I said was incorrect, that that is not restful? I'm only going by what I feel like the industry as a whole says. The industry as a whole says REST is, you know, get, post, put, and delete on raw entities. But REST doesn't... HTTP is an implementation of REST. It's not 
what rest is. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying what I believe the industry's definition at large to be and what most people consider it to be. So when you say uh, just a well-designed API is restful, even I mean, if it's like a call, an RPC type call, I would say I no, disagree. No, I'm not saying That's RPC type think. call. I'm not saying RPC type call is restful. I'm saying <clears throat> that you have a way to access resources and a standardized way to act upon them, like that you can delete something, you can add something, and you can share that usually with a URL, except in those rare cases where you can't because HTTP doesn't have a way of supporting doing See, everything with Git. My opinion is I could get implement that entirely and have it be in completely non-restful. I could, yeah. I could meet your requirements and have it be, that would be my opinion. But again, I don't think that's right. I wish that it wasn't right. I wish that RESTful was just like a piece of what you would consider to be a well-defined API. I think as an industry, we haven't come to any kind of consensus about that. We have this sort of Nazi view of what REST is and nobody does it. Well, Correct. like the way that Rails does it is pretty much like the first implementation of RESTful web design was more or less the first popular, the thing that brought REST to light was Rails. Yes or no? I'll defer to Chuck on that. I would say mostly yes, but even then, it was based on a PhD dissertation. I don't remember the guy's name, and Rails didn't even get it right. So for the most part, it is a pretty well-defined sense of uh, set of conventions around a resource. And so your resource can be a user, it can be some other object, and then your different, you know, get, post, put, delete, you know, define different operations around that resource. And I think, you know, no matter how you do it, again, if you have that convention that people can follow, and the thing I like about REST is if I say REST to somebody else, then they can generally guess or figure out pretty closely what I'm doing. Yeah, and I would say that mostly they wouldn't have a definition like what AJ said, even though I like AJ's definition, I would say most people would not agree with that. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, there's enough convention around it for most people to where, you know, they would approach it in a particular way because they know that it works in a particular way. But I also think that, like Jameson said, when you come to actually building a real production type application, you quickly realize that REST has a whole bunch of holes. And so you start, you know, either making... Right. You start deciding which rules to break. Yeah, exactly. And you make intelligent trade-offs there, but... Uh... Hopefully... Yeah. And that's the other thing is, you know, it's one of those things just like everything else where you figure out, oh, that really hurt when I did that. You know, you figure out where the potholes are and you make mistakes and, and that's how you gain experience in doing it right. The other thing is, is that with a good REST API, if you do deviate, you need to make sure that you are absolutely documenting where you deviated at so that people know what's different from what they expect. So here's a monkey I want to throw. Sorry, go ahead, AJ. I feel like what I said got misinterpreted because I didn't understand what... Anyway, what I'm saying is like a RESTful API is pretty much guessable, right? Mm -hmm. Like you more or less know, like once you see the application, if users is with a pluralized with an S and then to get a new user, you go to users slash new, I pretty much expect that every entity in the application is going to be something like that. Like it's this idea of following this CRUD, create, read, update, destroy pattern that within the application is consistent. I've seen REST endpoints where all the actions and all the bits that need to be twiddled are in the URL. And I've seen REST endpoints where it's fairly shallow as far as the URL you're, you're doing some verb to, but the actions and, and most of the specifics are contained in the requests, like the JSON that you send hmm. in the post. Oh, really? And I'm not, yeah, and so I'm not sure 
which one I prefer most. Like when I dorked around, and this was a few years ago, and I don't know if it's changed, but when I was dorking around with like the Facebook API, most of the stuff that you were, how you affected what you were going to get back was in the request body in a JSON object, as opposed to, you know, you organizing it into this big long URL. So you're saying like you could update slash users and include the bookmarks array in that instead of updating slash users and then separately updating slash bookmarks slash ID. Yeah, or maybe you just, you you know, I'm not saying it's designed right, but maybe you put to the users and and I know we're using hypothetical endpoint here, but you put to the users and you have some action parameter in that object that describes what it was going to do, and that action is in the JSON object versus being up in the URL. I've I've seen both, and I don't know which one's right. Like, when you guys well, were trying to define what's REST, I was trying to get the answer out of that. Which one's the right way and which one's the wrong way? And you're, There's another third option in there, and that is query parameters as well. Exactly. That's, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So Say that again. What parameters? Query parameters, right? So if I do a, yeah. a get, do a get to slash users slash one or slash users question mark ID equals one, right? Uh-huh. Are they both restful? And which one's right? Is one of them wrong? I think most people prefer, I don't know, it seems to me like the industry as a whole prefers just URLs to describe everything, which I kind of, I think is shallow, uh, weak. In my mind, query parameters are for filtering. They're for doing queries yeah. on the data set that you've returned. Right? So yeah. if you require query parameters or a call will fail, I think that's a mistake. And I think it should be changing the data representation that you get by hitting that main resource. Interesting. Yeah, like not a adding limit things to or it. sort, something like that. Yeah. I probably don't feel Match. as strongly about it, but I do like what you say. Right. Basically, where I'm at is that, again, so putting the parameters into the URL itself basically says this is the resource. So it could be a list of users or whatever, and then the query parameters just refine that. Right. What Aaron was talking about with putting information into the JSON, I mean, that gives you even more capabilities than you get out of the query parameters, and how is that any different, really? So that doesn't sound restful to me if you're putting stuff into a... JSON package. Like it, yeah, if you're posting instructions in JSON, that sounds more like RPC than REST. <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree. That's why I was asking. I had seen people have a, a REST endpoint that was built like that, and I was wondering if that was a good idea or not. Well, it certainly gives um, you some versatility. I will, however, say with regards to like what Jameson was saying about uh, the query strings, I do think they're only for gets, right? Like you shouldn't be doing query parameters on a post or any other verb there. It would only be on a get, right? Yeah. I think so. Uh, opinion, yeah. Yeah, but then you can put your query parameters in the post header like you do if you're submitting a form. Right. So I kind of want to move on to some other areas. I mean, we've kind of, you know, talked... Okay, I have another area I want to move to. Okay. OData, vastly superior to REST. Go. OData? I don't even know what that means. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, OData is the shiznit. I got nothing. I don't dislike... I, I assume you're correct then. I don't have an opinion between OData and, <laughs> and REST, but OData is basically like... You know how REST is the CRUD operations, but you're kind of limited in what you can really say as you make a request. Like if you want to get... An entity, you get that entity, but you can't say, oh, also, while you're at it, get me these related entities. And I only want these properties of the first entity and these other properties of the second entity. So just get me those and get them all in one pat in one request, where ODAT is basically like SQL for an API. Hmm. Sounds like overkill to me. Oh, no. Well, it's so awesome, because think about all, like what Jameson was saying about performance issues, right? If you've got an endpoint that returns 
all the data for something and you just want one piece of data, but you need it for everything, right? And you want to limit to just one property, that could be really difficult in REST unless you start building your REST endpoint to handle all of that, where OData just has it built in for you. There's a, Microsoft's Windows got an implementation, Java's got an implementation for it. I'm not sure what else. It's way cool. Check it out when you got a minute. It's yeah, that sounds brilliant. wicked interesting. It is. Uh, Breeze.js has an ODATA impl- compliant implementation, so you can hook up to ODATA servers. Hmm. So I have two questions about other things related to building apps on top of JSON APIs. One is if you're doing a client-side app, so you just get data from the server, how do you handle authentication? So the standard method, right, is to, at some point, the uh, client side has to authenticate. I guess this kind of depends on how you expect your API to be used. If you expect it to be extremely stateless, like every request might come from just one authenticated client, and they might not make any other requests at all, then you make every request require all the authentication. Whereas like a the other way, signing thing or something like that. Right, right. That's how right. the AWS API works. You think you get a token and you sign your request with it and send down the signature, then they verify it on their end. And then Ooh. you just use that. Wait a second. So you use that token. So there's, there's no there's session request right? you make. Sessionless. Yeah, there's no session. There's some request you make to get. So when you sign up, you get a, a private and public key. So it's kind of like public key encryption, mm-hmm. sort of ish. And you take the whole request you're going to make and you hash it together somehow with this public key. Okay. And then you append the hash to the request. Right. And then on the server, they verify it with your public key. Gotcha. But yeah, so, the basic result is that it's sessionless. You send all the authentication information with every request. Whereas the alternative is sort of session-based, which doesn't mean stateful, just means session-based. But you send in your authentication, you get some kind of a token back, and then you have to send that token with every request at that point to prove that you are the person who initially authenticated. And using some hashing, they can make sure that technology makes sure that nobody else grabbed your token and tried to hijack your session. Yeah, I mean, if you're on the browser, then your browser will more or less manage most of the session stuff, right? Yeah, because just because you put the token in the cookie, and then yeah. so the very first thing that comes in is your middle middleware server will first check the authentication by checking the token. And that's like, hopefully invisible to you, right? Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you can say, all right, go ahead and I know that they're authenticated or, or they populate the authentication information. Then inside the request, you make some checks and say, all right, well, is this person authenticated? Oh, do they have the authorization that I want? Right. But in the case of, you know, iPhone or, you know, some other server side application that doesn't necessarily handle or maintain cookies or session state, then yeah, you you have to do something like that where you're passing the authentication information every time. Right. So what do you think, Jameson? Is that sufficient coverage? Yes, I think it is. What about if you're doing more (laughs) real-timey things together with normal uh, HTTP requests? Does that question even make sense? So say part of your app is streaming data, part of your app is on-demand getting it from the server. Hmm. Twitter has a TCP stream for their streaming updates. HTTP 2.0 is supposed to have good stuff where you can just give data as it's needed. So yeah, but right now when I've done it, it's always felt really weird to me because there's part of my app where everything is all like restful and there's URLs for it and whatever. Like it's kind of standard and it makes sense. And then all of a sudden, if you get to this special magic place in the code, everything happens over WebSockets and you have no more URLs and like you magically get data. I don't know. It feels like there's a disconnect there and I don't know the best way to resolve it. 
Well, the stuff that's going over WebSockets isn't that, like, live? Yeah, it doesn't so, have to be. You can open up a WebSocket and start, you know, authenticating your users and making updates to your data. Right, but what I'm saying is the use case for a WebSocket is generally something that is living, right? Like, if I have a blog post, then I have a URL to that blog post, and that makes sense. Or if I have, like, a contact object in my app, I have a URL to that contact object, and that makes sense. But I don't necessarily, like, the, the WebSocket is kind of the shim of the URL of what's happening right now with a series of objects, like you, status updates. You're kind of implying that it's only one way coming down to the client, but the client can also real-time be sending data back up to the client too, right? And so maybe for the, your application, it might make sense that, oh, I want to get these blog posts. I might open up a WebSocket and start streaming the blog posts across because that just makes sense in the performance requirements or the behavior requirements of the application, right? That's possible. It seemed like you just get an array of blog posts if you had them. Like WebSockets seem like real, real time. So additionally, WebSockets doesn't necessarily, you don't translate into like a URL syntax, but it has the notion of channels. So if you have like different buckets of rest or of socket data you needed to pipe or listen to, the way they handle it is by subscribing to different channels or joining different channels and the server can begin broadcasting on different channels. So I mean, from what I've seen, it's either via channel or when you send your message to the server, you've got some sort of a type in there and you have to switch on the type to find out what kind of a thing it was, which it's all crappy, right? Right. But yeah. I've seen that happen too. That's a good point. Uh, let's just say that you are uh, listening for server updates about a very restful piece of data. Like, I want to know when somebody posts a comment to my blog and I want it over a WebSocket so I can get a push notification. That's a very restful piece of data, right? Well, I think the data, if you have a URL to it, that is a restful piece of data, but the live stream isn't restful. It's just a live stream. Yeah. Like, there's no state. I guess that's the thing is like a WebSocket is somewhat, you're not transferring a state because it's just whatever happens to be right now. I mean, I don't know. I guess you could have a restful resource called slash now, but you'd have to say like five things that are happening right now, or you'd always get back <laughs> an empty array because nothing's happening that millisecond. Right. Yeah, they're yeah, kind of, the way they're we, kind of, I was just going to say the way we do it right now that still feels weird is for anything that has live updates, there's also just an endpoint to get the entire state of that collection. So you can say, give me all of the posts right now, but there's also a separate place to subscribe to a WebSocket for those posts. If we're and, talking about posts. Restfully, but, but they probably, have similar oh. URLs and they, well, not really, but you know what I'm talking about. They look sort of similar and there's a WebSocket analog to the rest URL. So that's interesting, but I think that Aaron was the one who might have said the most useful piece of information. That is, if you're designing an API for real-time communication, right, what's the best way to design that? Uh, oh. Rephrase the question. You're designing an API for real-time communication. What are the best ways to design that? Doesn't so, it depend on the data and what's really important? Sure. So does everything. So <laughs> yeah, everything I'm giving depends. my consultant answer again. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. When HTTP two comes out in full force, we'll use HTTP again. <laughs> we did a whole episode on HTTP two on uh, Ruby Rogues. Just so you know, we'll put a link in the show notes to that. So, Aaron, do you have any like insights or wisdom about that? <laughs> no. I know for live streaming data, I know what I've done, and I don't know if it's kosher, and I don't know what it's what other people have done, but I've done some channeling when I need different bits to subscribe to other bits, 
I'll make a channel for one and I'll make a channel for the other. Uh, without using channels, I mean, your code gets so verbose on the server where you're doing so much boilerplate switching on what people do and don't want to listen to, and you've got so many maps uh, recording who wants to hear what. I mean, I mean, you have to use channels through like a socket IO library to manage who wants to hear what. Um, I don't really have any great information. I only know what I've done. I've done, I've used channels and then inside of a channel, I throw the query parameters, if you will, into the message body. I mean, as properties inside that. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's good or bad. That's just how I've done it and it's worked, but I've never done anything humongous. Right. Jameson? Yes. Your turn. <laughs> your, your turn to bestow I, some I wisdom have no on us. Answers. I have no wisdom. I came to listen to you guys to gain wisdom. You sound like you've been doing a significant amount of real time over there at ITV. No, I don't know. We do a little bit, but it's not. I'm pretty sure Aaron does more. It's just what I said. We have, I should be more specific. We have channels that match the restful endpoints. So if you want real time updates, you subscribe to a channel and it looks a lot like the URL to get the entire state of that resource. So is it, um, is but it we don't, we don't have lots of things. Oh, go ahead. Is it polling? No, 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 no. You don't poll. So when you first, I mean, the way our app works is it's kind of a real time TV thing. So when you first go into the track for TV, you get everything that's happened for that TV show so far up to now. And then you subscribe to the channel for the updates from now on. So we kind of combine them both, but I have no idea if that's a terrible, like, if someone can think of a better way to do it, I would love to hear because I'm just stumbling around in the dark here. So you're like, then you name your channels, like the name of the channel is, is some URL. Is that what you're saying? It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Okay. So, so you can kind of pair them up easily. Like they, yeah. they naturally go together. Yeah, that makes good sense. But it sounds, I think we have a lot different requirements than what you guys do, Aaron. So yeah. So what about just having the resource be something like slash news items query sense equals Unix timestamp. And then, then you have to poll. Right. The whole point of WebSockets, well, not the whole point. Part of the point of WebSockets is to avoid polling. Because if nothing's changed, you don't want to send requests to the server. Well, that, that's, that's what I'm saying is like if you didn't want to use WebSockets, I still, I guess WebSockets are mature now because you guys are using them. But, uh, <laughs> that's the definition. Um, right? So I prescribe what my users will use, what they'll come to the show using. And I mean, when they're coming in Chrome, dude, there's no reason not to use WebSockets because writing a backend with WebSockets is so, I, I think it's real easy and, and your code's real clean. Do so. WebSockets work on mobile now? Did they finally sort that out between like the 17 different versions of WebSockets? So you can use the bare WebSockets. Most people that I know, I feel like, use a compatibility thing like Socket.io. There's also third-party libraries like I still hear people complaining that Socket.io doesn't work very well. And that's what I was hearing like two years ago. There's one called... Socks.js. Is it Express.io? There's another one that was like the successor to Socket.io that is supposedly better. I'm going to lean uh, in and shove us off of this topic a little bit because I, I have one other thing that I want to talk about, and that is actually formatting the JSON. I've seen Holy Wars over this. And formatting, yeah, you must know some of my relatives in in American FARC and Spanish FARC. <laughs> anyway, so the formatting issue, for example, uh, Rails by default actually gives you an object and it has one key and that key is the type. And then it has the value as the actual rendering of the object. So then it actually has all the attributes on it. 
And you can turn that off. But I've seen people that are religious about, oh, well, now I know what it is. And other people going, well, I made the request to the resource and the resource tells me what it is. So what's your take on that? Should you tell people what they are or assume that they know or what? So I just kind of went through something like this at work and I, I didn't think I had an opinion, but it ended up that I did. So like if I hit an endpoint and I, I ask, you know, and the endpoint is things, right? Like I, I do a get to things. I just want things to come back and be the things. I want it to be a collection of things. And they asked me, do you want it to just be a collection of things or do you want it to be an object that has a things property and that things property is the collection? And so I had to think, I'm like, at first I didn't mind, but I don't like that it's an object with a things property inside of it. I decided I didn't like that. But yeah, and so we switched all of our stuff over to do the way I don't like it. Because then when I come back... <laughs> you then know, when, the argument, I guess. Yeah, I lost. I mean, it's because I'm the front-end guy. I'm not the back-end guy. So now when I come back and I don't want things anymore, I want foos. I don't know. Now the object comes back and the property for the collection isn't things anymore. It's now foos. I don't know. I just like to have like not so much meta crap in my response. I just want, for me, the collection... But I felt like some of the back-end purists, they love to have this object come back with a meta property in it. It's got like an underscore meta data with all sorts of stuff that we don't use inside it. So, and then, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I keep cutting you off. And then you got your foo property, which is the only thing you really care about. So I just thought it was weird to bury it one level deeper inside of the response. But I so, feel like it's geared toward people that make tools to consume them automatically instead of consuming each resource specifically that's what um the default rest adapter in ember data expects it expects if you're getting slash posts you get an object that has a post property that has the array that's actually your data and i think it just makes it easier to wire stuff up automatically but if you're just writing the code yourself to do it yeah it's like now i have to write dot posts to get the actual data it's just like one more line of code i think it's weird to call the key what the resource is to me it makes sense to have like maybe a value or collection or some generic type name like that, and then have the collection be attached but to that. It's not telling you anything. Like, well, you already know you're getting a collection. But you can put some additional worse. meta information, like a warning or something like that, that maybe you also want to serve non-HTTP clients for, like, mm -hmm. iOS or I don't know. I guess you'd want to do HTTP there. But, it, like, having a little bit of space for metadata, I think, is a nice idea. I think it depends on your use case. So in some cases, yes, I agree. You know, it's nice to be able to say, hey, this is what happened and here's the data. And in other cases, it's, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think giving a status like success or not, I think is a little bit silly if you're going over HTTP because that's what your HTTP return codes are for. And then you can still put stuff usually in the body to give more information if you need to. But at the same time, one use case that I can think of is, for example, if Let's say that I'm, you know, doing some single page app with a blog. And so I want the posts and I want the comments and uh, I want like users. And so the users could be the author of the post or it could be the commenter or it could be something else in the layout on the blog. And so in that case, I could see making the request to posts and then getting a couple of collections that are all, you know, relevant to what I need to display on the page. But other than that, 
you know, and then I get it all in one request instead of making other requests to get the comments and the users. And I think that's cool. But it really just depends, I think, on your approach and what your uh, trade-offs are. And if you don't really have a strong reason for doing a lot of this stuff, I'm all in favor of keeping it simple. So in that case, I really do like just returning the stupid array full of, you know, simple objects, and you just know that all the objects in there are posts because it's all simple and you can make assumptions and it's easy. But then, you know, if you find that you are sort of DDoSing your server and you can save yourself enough uh, work by combining this stuff, then, yeah, go the other way. So one question that I do have there is let's say that you want to convey additional information about an error. Like you go to make a request, you can't get back the array of items, so what you would get back is just like an empty array. But you'd rather give back some information about the error then at that point, where do you put that? Do you put it in an HTTP header? Do you put it in a cookie? I mean, like, what do you do to get at it? There are a couple of options. And again, this depends comes back on to what's, what's important. Yeah, it depends on the error. It depends on what's important. It depends on what you're trying to convey with that error. It depends on whether the front end even cares. You know, it may just care, oh, something bad happened. You know, and so you handle all those things differently. So you could handle things where you get the uh, error response of 403 or 404. 400 or something and you just handle it and you just pull the error data out of the body of the response or out of the header or you know if if it's more convenient for you then yeah return a 200 error or 200 response code and actually give them an error status in the object i think that really just boils down to what you want to do and what makes life easier on you what were you going to say aaron I was going to say some of the stuff you said, but you said more. So good job, man. Good job. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we did it. We did it. did it. Nice. So are there other formatting issues that we need to consider? One of the other things I see sometimes is that the keys on a JSON object are wrapped in quotes and sometimes they're not. Does that matter? It's JSON. They're wrapped in quotes. Yeah. yeah what, we... what about the keys or the values? Sorry. So like numeric values, should they all be strings or can they be numeric values? They can be numeric. They should be numeric if they're numeric, and they should be strings if they're strings. Booleans are booleans. They're just the word true or false, obviously. Well, undefined. You don't have to put the word undefined in it. You just leave it blank, or do you have to put the word undefined? Uh, you can't put undefined. Undefined isn't part of JSON. Oh, that's true. It's part of JSON. Yeah, that's right. You have to do either null or leave it out. I think null is kind of nice. One thing, if you're having not a web browser consume stuff, what I found is that you want it to be as consistent as possible because as soon as you throw it into another programming language, especially if it's typed like Java, the library is going to like hate you so bad if everything about your JSON structure isn't consistent. So like never have something that's sometimes an array and sometimes an object or sometimes null and sometimes a string. Like if it's going to be a string, and you think that you might have a Java client consuming it, then make it an empty string as the null value. Or like try to keep the keys there and try to keep things of the same type, if at all possible, because libraries are stupid and they don't do the right thing a lot of the time. Wow, we've really been all over That's the pretty, place with this episode. It's pretty bold, yeah. AJ. Yeah. Well, no, I had at SpotRF, I created a lot of example code for uh, customers and... I'd be like, why is this so hard? This should be really simple. But then I'd go to do it in their language, and I'd do it in Java or .NET or C or C++ or whatever it was and try to use the library that they were using. 
And it'd be like, wow, this library is ridiculous. Why isn't it seen like, oh, this is null, so therefore it should just be an empty string if it has to type it? Or What if you're it, not likely to ever use it in a language like that? You know, What if you're only going to be consuming it in JavaScript? If you're never going to do it, then fine. I mean, but I mean, in all likelihood, if you have an API, someone's going to consume it, and they're going to consume it with a language that is statically typed and can't understand a difference between zero and null very well, or a property being absent. I was going to say, having my primary languages be Ruby, JavaScript, and Objective-C, I think I know what the Java and C-sharp developers' problems were. I feel like there's a veiled criticism in there, and I didn't understand yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, Chuck's making fun of somebody, and I don't know if yeah. it's me or not. Yeah, explain it, please. <laughs> I was just trying to say that the problem might be the language. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. Wow. I, yeah. It, no, it, right tool, right job, right? Right. If any government is going con to consume your data, pretend like their parser is a C parser, because it's going to be at least that bad or worse. Right. Well, I just know how many times I've sent out object object as the value of my JSON keys, so I can't make fun of people for parsing stuff out too much. You know, <laughs> when you like try and to string an yeah, object. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I'm just guilty. a, um, totally. what would you call it, a, a polymorphism at its finest. It's just, <laughs> everything's contained in that one little string. <laughs> It's true. You just have to figure out what it means. Yep. All right. Well, anything else that we should uh, cover in here? I'd like to come back full circle and ask each of you guys one question. Okay. You're building a new app from scratch. You're the designer. You're designing everything. You're building your API and it's got whatever kind of front end you feel like it's going to have. Do you build a restful API or a very strictly restful API or not? Aaron, go first. Uh, yes. Question mark. <laughs> no, of course I do. I mean, when I hear the Rails guys say how easy it is to build Rails apps, and I think, you know, building a client site, a thick client in a web browser with an Express, Node Express backend, I think that's about as easy as it gets having never used Rails. So yeah, and when I use uh, Node, everything I, I do is REST. So I don't even have like another go-to option. It's always, you know, solid REST. It returns, you know, 401s, 402s. I don't 404 it, but I could. And uh, everything, uh, you know, post gets, puts, everything, you know, matters, the verbs. So I definitely don't go by the jsonapi.org stuff because preference. I mean, I could be convinced to do not that, but yeah, that's my take. All right, explain the uh, 404 thing you said. Yeah, you use uh, 401s instead of 404s? I got to go Google a 401. No. I don't even... On my own stuff, my personal stuff, not at work. I just return empty arrays because I don't like to catch 404s because I'm lazy. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. You're the enemy. All right, Jameson. Um, yeah, you're, you're next, Jameson. <laughs> 401's go. unauthorized, dude. I was like, wait a minute. 403's unauthorized. Uh, so 401. 403's oh, forbidden. I thought 403 was payment required. Oh, 403's forbidden. You're right. My bad. Man, okay. we're such nerds. Okay, Jameson, go. <laughs> Arguing about. It. Uh, yes, it's kind of the default. Unless there's a reason not to, then I would just do it because I think it makes sense. I, so yes, until there's a reason not to. But the reason not to isn't that I didn't want to. It's like, this is way too slow to do with REST or this is real time and it doesn't make sense or something. All right, AJ, you're up. I'm less sure of what REST is after our conversation, <laughs> so I don't know anymore. Sorry, users. <laughs> you picked the wrong week. <laughs> Um, I am I Tron. I fight for the users. Is that <laughs> I always return 418 no matter what. Good. But I think that just being consistent, like having the idea of that CRUD interface, 
is good, but I don't think that you necessarily need to be like extremely, extremely, extremely strict about it. Cause sometimes HTTP just doesn't do stuff well. Like sometimes you have to post when what you want to do is a Git because Git doesn't have a body and query parameters just don't serialize well for certain types of things that you need to do. And sometimes you want to do stuff like, I don't know if it's technically restful, what Chuck was saying earlier, where you get the post and the comments and the users all at once. And then on the client side, reconstruct it to match, you know, each user to the post or the comment or whatever. But I think that makes a lot of sense. It sounds restful to me, right. but you know, it's not strictly restful in that I make one request per user and one request per comment and one request per blog article, which I think would be really weird. Okay, Chucky, you're up. <laughs> I just heard AJ and I'm sitting here thinking he's just trying to justify being a rest hippie. <laughs> um, I don't even know what that means, but I agree. So, yeah, I tend to follow the REST convention as defined by Rails, because that's usually what I'm working in to build these APIs. And, yeah, I mean, if I have a reason to break with the standard, you know, put, post, get, delete, you know, convention, I'll do it. But usually it's it's out of, you know, major performance or major convenience uh, wins. Otherwise, I just stick to what they've got there. So that's my approach. So speaking of 400 errors... I recently had a reconstructive surgery on my knee because my ligament was torn. And Aaron, do you remember who made the joke? Um, me. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was Aaron. So Aaron, yeah. tell your joke. Let me explain it. My ACL was actually just completely missing. The doctor went in for some other purpose and I had absolutely no ACL. So I had just had to have surgery to explain it. So I was telling this to Aaron and Aaron says, Dude, you, you 404 your ACL, bro. <laughs> There's a geek joke for you. That's geek. Yeah. That's so, geek right so Joe, if you were building an <laughs> API, would you go with REST? You know what? I'm probably going to vary just a little bit and say I'd probably only go like kind of half. I think I feel like I do more REST when it makes sense and do more kind of like an RPC type feel. And I just feel like, oh, I want an operation to does this and call over the web. So I'm a little bit more loosey-goosey than the four of views. Yeah. Hmm. So, so an idea of something that's not very RESTful phone calls, text messages with Twilio. That's something where it makes a lot more sense to do RPC style stuff because it just doesn't really fit into the paradigm. Right. If you use their API, you kind of understand what I'm well, saying, maybe. But you're not dealing with a restful resource per se there. I mean, you kind of send it off and done. I disagree, bro. I think Twilio is rest, man. Mm. Depends on which part you're talking about. Because one part is super restful. But then the other part of their API is like really just because it's so stateful, like it's entirely stateful in terms of like sessionful is what I mean. Hmm. Let's shut all that after because I haven't seen that. I've done some Twilio and I thought I love how you rest into their system and they rest the stuff back out to your system. Like it's rest in, rest out. I think they're pretty solid. It says rest on the API docs. Yeah, there's a REST API, but then there's the other API. Have we had an episode on Twilio? Maybe we need to we have an should. episode on Twilio. No, we need it's to do amazing. That. I love yeah. Twilio. Yeah, we should definitely do a Twilio. You can get us a Twilio dude on here? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. I'll shoot you an email about it. He was it. in Florida with me last week, so yeah, definitely. I'll yeah. shoot you an email on CC Mandy to start a... Okay. All right, cool. cool. All right, well, we have been talking about this for an hour and seven minutes, and we Holy cow. haven't done the picks. So we'll do the picks and we'll wait to see the comments where it's like, guys, where do I even start? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. there are so many opinions on this. I'm really curious to see what people think. So please go leave a comment, please. Yeah. Yes. 
All right, Aaron. All right, so I'm going to do a picks. Number one, I got a Sphero. Have any of you guys used a Sphero? Oh, yeah. Those are no. those little programmable balls with the yeah. lights. Yeah. I've seen them. They roll around and stuff. Yeah, so I bought one, and it's pretty freaking awesome. So I fell in love with it, it's, and it's fun to build apps for. So my second pick is going to be Cylon Jess, which is a pretty awesome lib to talk to these things. I love them so much that we actually, um, we're going to do a Sphero hackathon at NGConf in January. Actually, the author of Cylon is going to come out. So I'm going to pick Sphero. I'm going to pick Cylon. Jess, that's my picks. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? All right. I'm going to have two picks. I'm going to pick the board game Masquerade, spelled M-A-S-C-A-R-A-D-E. So it's a funny spelling, which matters because there's board games that are spelled with the normal spelling. I can't uh, spell that word anyways, so that's probably how I would spell it. It's a really, really enjoyable game, and I think I picked this before, but I just really enjoyed it so much, I want to pick it again. It's a party game you can play with anywhere from, like, three, or, or I think four, up to, like, 14 people. Plays in, like, 20 minutes, and it's kind of a bluffing-type game. It's just really, really, really fun. So I'm going to pick Masquerade. And then my other pick is going to be the pair of books, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. They were authored, I don't know, like in the 80s or something, sort of a historical romance about World War II, although romance is kind of stretching it because it's just more about like this family of people during World War II and just an amazing set of books. If you like World War II or interested in World War II at all, it's just an absolutely amazing set of books, beautiful books. I'm in the middle of the second book, War to Remembrance, right now, and absolutely one of the best pairs of books ever written, especially a historical fiction. Awesome. Jameson, what are your picks? I have two. One is Gatling, which is a tool for doing load testing. I was looking into this for a couple of weeks, and this is the best open source load testing tool I've found if you need to do flexible or trying to recreate user actions to an API, but also need the flexibility to fill in dynamic values. So say like, I want this user to go to this page, if you want to hit this specific resource, but with a range of possible IDs or something. So it's been really great. And it's pretty impressive how much load you can do off just one machine. Then my other pick is a website called chillestmonkey.com. And it's a picture of a, a really chill monkey. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. AJ, what are your picks? First of all, I'm going to take a look at this picture. <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, it's yeah, true, I'm gonna, right? I mean, that is the chillest monkey. I love that guy. That is. Yeah. Definitely that he basically puts the Lion King to shame because he is king of the jungle. He's that chill. I was so expecting to get Rickrolled right there. Oh, no. I <laughs> Next week. <laughs> um, okay, so technically I will pick Passport.js and OAuth Tourize. I must say that that guy, Jared Hansen, is a stud because he just cranks out all sorts of modules that are auth related and they seem to be pretty good and easy to use and he's got documentation and stuff. So, I mean, it's not like it's the perfect documentation or the perfect libraries, but they're really good. And he obviously has a handle on how all that stuff works and puts it all together. So like props to him and his libraries that make doing hard things easy. I'm also going to pick my roommate's fish tank because Chuck loves the sound that it makes on the podcast. And I'll pick, there's a couple of books that I think we've picked before and I just want to repick them because they're cool. Influencer, The Power to Change Anything, and then Nonviolent Communication. I think at the core of both those books, one of the core principles in, in both of them is the idea that you are the master at the helm. You are the captain of your own destiny. And so you have to take personal responsibility 
for whatever is going on in your life. Because until you take personal responsibility, you will create undesired outcomes in your life. You know, like if I say, well, I have to go to work, for example. Well, I don't have to go to work. Like I choose to go to work because I want to please clients or because I want to make money or because I want to provide for myself and my family or like whatever it is Have that you eat. want to do it for. Right. And so both of them do go into that kind of realm of self-responsibility, which I think is really cool. And then lastly, I'm just going to pick my little project site that I'm working on, dateprovo.com, because it's got cool ideas on it if you're into dates that don't involve alcohol or really like basically fun teenager type dates. That's kind of what's going up on there. And some other people are submitting stuff and it's cool. Awesome. All right. So I've got a couple of picks. The first pick I'm going to pick is fiverr.com. I had a little logo done for Going Rogue, which is the video series that I'm working on. It was pretty good and fairly inexpensive. So both are things that I like. I'm also going to pick Hover again. I just, I love their stuff. It is so awesome. They are easily the best domain registrar that I've, I've ever used. And finally, I've been a fan for the Shark Tank show for a while, the TV show, and they put out a book and I've been listening to the book and it's pretty basic business stuff. But if you're looking to start a business, it was worth it for me to listen through. I've been listening to it on Audible. It's been worth it for me to listen through and just kind of get some of the basics back in my head and go, oh, I need to do this better. Oh, I need to do that. I need to think about this other thing. And so uh, anyway, really enjoying that. So those are my picks. And... I guess that's it. We'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.